All right, while they're heading outside, let's take our Bibles to John chapter 20 this morning. As we're going through why we believe what we believe about the church, we're sort of going through the, the history of the origin of the church. And that's how I've chosen to sort of go through our doctrine is as it presents itself in Scripture. So we've gone through sort of uh, the start of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist and so forth, all the way through to the beginning of the church age and sort of how you see this setting up of one thing, the setting up of one thing and the, the tearing down of something else. You know, the New Testament starts last week. We talked about the Lord's Supper and, and how you kind of see on the same day at the same meal, the Passover and the Lord's Supper. I know there are two distinct things, but it is the setting up of one thing and the bringing down of something else. And you see that with many things in the New Testament. At one point, Jesus compares it to putting new wine in old bottles, because what happens is you put new wine in an old uh, and mix them together, they will expand. And back in Bible times, uh, they carried most of their drinks like that in uh, uh, cloth, like uh, lambskin and so forth, that they would sew together tight so that the drinks wouldn't spill out of it. But if it expanded too large in that that bag, that sack would burst, and the wine would spill out, and that's what Jesus was talking about. You can't put new wine in old skins, or else it'll burst and everything will be lost. And it's a comparative uh, statement to the Old and New Testament, that the New Testament isn't being added on top of the Old Testament, that it is the New Testament in place of the Old Testament. So we're seeing a lot of that happening as we get further on in the church, the uh, story of the church being established here. We're seeing more of the New Testament set up. And so what happens is, and we've talked about in Christology, we talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We even talked about how that compares to the church age and how he bought the church. The church is referred to many times in Scripture as the bride of Christ. Right now, that is uh, figurative in many ways, but there are some literal applications to that. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the sermon this morning, but it has to do with uh, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Right. So some of that is very literal. Some of it is very figurative. And uh, what we see here is after the death, the burial and the resurrection of the Lord, he's paid for the church. The church age has been uh, initiated. Uh, here in John chapter 20, we see the beginning of what we call the 40 days. right? And the 40 days is a time period between the resurrection, we celebrate on Easter, right, and what's called the ascension. And now for those of you who don't know what that is, the ascension is just the day where Jesus ascended back up into heaven. <clears throat> so the time period between his resurrection and his ascension was 40 days. So he spent 40 days as the resurrected Savior here on the earth, teaching various disciples various lessons. We have a record of, I think it's four things I have written down that we're going to take a few weeks and cover the lessons he taught the church during the 40 days. Right? These are the things he wanted the church to know before he ascended back up into heaven. And the first bit of that we find in John chapter 20, we're going to start... In verse 19, it says in the same day, this is immediately after the resurrection, excuse me, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. I like your ringtone, by the way. 
when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, if you follow this timeline, this time where they're assembled together, it is a Sunday. It's not a Saturday. And there are some people that say, well, yeah, but pastor, it's a Saturday, or it's a Sunday for fear of the Jews. They didn't gather together for the purpose of worship. They gathered together for the purpose of not dying so that the Jews wouldn't hunt them out and kill them like they just did Jesus. I say, yes, that's true. But also it is the same day Jesus chose to appear to the disciples. All right, so you might say they didn't gather for this purpose, but Jesus appeared for this purpose, right? And we take our doctrine from the Lord. So the Lord chose to appear to them on a Sunday, and that is why he also resurrected on a Sunday. That is why we worship on Sundays. We believe that to be the new um, Sabbath day, if you will. So Jesus... Uh, uh, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, peace be unto you. Now, this is a huge moment. Don't let this moment pass you by. This is a really big thing that just happened for them because their best friend, their mentor, their master was just bloody, bloodily and violently taken away from them. They couldn't even bear to stay with him all the way to the cross. Most of them scattered at Gethsemane. The soldiers came and went and arrested him and they took off. Now, Peter, he followed for a while longer than everybody else. Peter had a, <clears throat> a determination about him that other disciples didn't. He had a zeal and enthusiasm that I can't uh, really express to you today, or I'll use up the entirety of my voice. Uh, but Peter, he had an energy about him that the other disciples didn't. So he followed Jesus all the way to where they first interrogated him, to the, the high priest's house. And there, as he was watching what was happening, that was when he denied the Lord three times, uh, the cock crew, uh, he went out and wept bitterly, that whole story. That's where that took place at. And uh, we, we give Peter a lot of hard time about that, right? We talk about his denial of the Lord and his cursing to prove he's not a Christian and so forth. But he was the only disciple to make it that far. And he's working without the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it's just him. Unlike we Christians today... He hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit because the Lord was still with him. There's only after the Lord uh, is resurrected, that, and we're going to see that in a minute, that they receive the Holy Spirit. And even after that, the Holy Spirit isn't activated until the day of Pentecost next chapter 2, which is something we talked about during our uh, series on the seven feasts. If you haven't seen that, go check it out. There's a whole playlist on Facebook, or you can go to our website. Anytime you want to find our most current series, you should go to the church's website. You click on media. There'll be two pictures, right, that represent our two, our ongoing and our last one we just finished series on Wednesday night. You should click on the picture. It'll take you right to it on Facebook. <clears throat> so they're very easy to find. Go check those out. It'll be, it could be good for you. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there with those seven feasts. But this was one parallel in Acts chapter 2. They received the Holy Spirit and so forth. Today at Pentecost. And, uh, They, so they were working without the Holy Spirit, and they were sad. They were distraught. They had spent three and a half years getting to know this man, uh, this man who was the best person they ever knew, this compassionate human being, this uncorruptible person, this man that they looked up to, the, a man they could call master, a man they could call friend, a man they could call their king. Many times they looked to the Lord and they said, are you going to establish your kingdom now? You'd be the perfect king, the world's perfect king. I want to see you on that throne. 
are you going to do it yet? Are you going to establish yourself on that throne? And, and Jesus always told him, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. It'll happen when it's meant to happen. So when Jesus was taken by those Roman soldiers, he was beaten with the palms of their hands. Imagine the, the most peaceful, most compassionate, kindest human being you've ever met. The sweetest person in the world. The greatest person in the world gives more, does more for anybody else, cares for people in ways you've never seen. Now imagine somebody takes that person and creates a circle around them and then starts pummeling them for fun. It's horrific. It's disgusting. And it's what happened to Jesus. And then they took him from there and they dragged him to Pilate, who then had him whipped with the cat of nine tails. 40 stripes saved one, 39 lashes with that cat of nine tails, the Bible tells us. And they whipped him with whips, with little broken, jagged edges on him, peeling the flesh off of his back 39 times. Comes back and he's bloodied and he's massacred. He's, he's horrified. This peaceful, wonderful teacher and mentor. This uncorruptible person. And that wasn't enough for him, so they took him and they, they tied a cross to his back and they made him carry it all the way across town. Goes up on top of a hill and they make him carry his own cross to the top of that hill where they set it up and they put him on it where he dies. Now this is the story the disciples have been told. This is what happened to their friend and their mentor and their master and their teacher. So they're all sitting together trying not to die for fear of the Jews, finding them and dragging them out and killing them too. This is their mental state. This is where they are when Jesus shows up. This was an emotional day for them. Their master, their mentor, their teacher, their, their, their friend, he showed up in that place on that day, looked at them in the eye, and said, peace be unto you. What a phrase for him to say in that moment, because they didn't have any peace. They were distraught. They were crying. They, were, they had their whole world ripped violently away from them. They had no peace when the Lord returned to them and said, peace be unto you. Here I am. I'm okay. You can have your peace back. Peace be unto you. When he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Why would he do that? Somebody tell me. Why would he do that? To prove that it was him. What, what are in his hands? Holes. Where those railroad spikes went into his hands. What was in his side? That's where the spear went in. Perfectly between two ribs so it didn't break a bone. The Bible says out came blood and water. That's where the spear went into me. He says that's where the nails went into me to prove it's him. They show, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. That may be the greatest understatement. Just to say glad. I'm sure there's not a word in the English language to describe how absolutely beside themselves they were to see Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Peace be unto you again. 
Because he said it the first time, and they were so shocked to see him, they probably didn't even hear what he said. And they run up to him, and they see him, and they see his hands, and they see his side, and they know it's him, and they have their moment of emotional, and now they're listening. He's going to say something, they're going to hear him. So he says it again, peace be unto you. As my father hath sent me, he said, even so send I you. Even after resurrecting, do you notice that Jesus retained the wounds he received on the cross? And even in heaven, the Bible mentions, in the book of Revelation, the, the, the nail holes in his hands. This is a reminder of what he did for us. Imagine the shame these disciples must be feeling as they looked upon his scars for the very first time. His mother saw those scars being made. Mary of Magdalene saw those scars being made. His, his brother saw those scars being made. But his own disciples, those who pledged loyalty to him, they were nowhere to be found. They left Jesus. But you know something? Even though they left Jesus... Jesus never left them. Remember the story, we, we, the only disciple we know about that night is Peter. And even though Peter's denying Jesus, and even though Peter is, is doing his very best to prove he's not a Christian, Jesus never left him. Gave him a reminder, and, and I can't prove this in Scripture, but I believe that in that moment, when the, the rooster began to crow, that Jesus and the Lord locked eyes in that moment. And I believe that there wasn't any more than a, a glance at one another, just maybe a, a look as he's being beaten with the palms of his as they're pulling the hairs out of his beard. That Peter and Jesus looked at each other for half a second. And Peter realized that he was being beaten for the sins he was in the process of committing. Watching Jesus being beaten for his sins. And that is why he went out and wept bitterly. Peter and Jesus were never the same for a while after that. And we're going to talk about the lesson that Jesus taught Peter uh, probably in another week. But the shame that they felt for abandoning Jesus. But Jesus never left them. He was always with them, and he's ready for their repentance. He's welcome with open arms to receive them back. It's like the story of the prodigal son. That prodigal son, he goes out, right? Well, that's a big deal. Most parents wouldn't have allowed that, huh? He comes to his dad and says, give me my inheritance, and the dad does it. I think most dads, their kids would have said, came to them and said, give me my inheritance, and they just said, you're absolutely out of your mind. Go work the field and shut up. That's not what this father did. He gave his son the money. He let him leave. He let him live this riotous lifestyle. Parties and drinking and, and fake friends and God knows what else he spent that money on until it was all gone. And he's living with a, a, a herd of swine, a bunch of pigs, and he's eating the slop with them to survive. But he realizes, maybe if I go home and I beg my father for forgiveness, he'll let me work like one of the servants. And he comes home and his father gushes over him, 
puts the robe on and puts the ring on his finger, kills the fatted calf in his name. He's just so happy to have his son back. You know, sometimes we're so ashamed of the decisions we make in life, we feel as though we don't deserve to come back. We can't come back to God. We've got to really fix ourselves first. And God says, you don't need to do that. You just come back and we'll figure the rest out together. You just come back to me, the Lord says. You, you be the prodigal son. You return home. And God says, I will help you find your way back from those things. Ready and wel- welcoming with open arms for his disciples to return. Verse 20 tells us they were glad when they saw the Lord. And we talked about this a bit. But the presence of the Lord always brings happiness. The presence of the Lord always brings happiness. Psalms 122 verse 1 uh, Dr. Barber loves to quote this, and I love when he quotes it. It says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. David here saying that going into God's house is going into the very presence of God himself, and that brings gladness. There's just something unexplainable. There's an X factor about going to church. And you may be in a bad mood when you go to church. You may even be in a bad mood when you leave church. But there's just something about being in church that does something for you in a place you can't quite explain. That's that spiritual factor. It's good for the soul. It it brings a certain kind of happiness to be in the presence of the Lord, whether it's here in church or in your own personal lives. You have that time with the Lord each day. It brings happiness into your life. Uh, Dr. Barber likes to quote and say, some of y'all come in here, like he said, I was mad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I'm glad we don't have that problem here. But some Christians do have that problem. They go to church and they don't want to be there and they're grumbling and groaning. I had a friend who, when I was uh, younger, would go to church with him. He was older than I was, but every Sunday he would go, I don't know why I'm here. I don't want to be here. I I I don't enjoy being here. I don't know why I came today. And I would try to encourage him. I'd say, well, you know, maybe by the end of the service, you'll be encouraged, you'll be uplifted, you know. You may be having a bad day today, but, you know, just just hang in there. And people would talk to him about it all the time. And, 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 you know, I just finally came to this place where I realized in Scripture it said be either hot or cold, neither lukewarm. And I finally said to him one day, I said, brother, if you don't want to be here, don't be here. And he had certain ministries he worked, and he's like, no, I can't do that. And I'm like, believe me, we can fill the holes. You'll certainly be missed. And we'd love for you to be here, but I think we want you to be here if you want to be here. But if you're going to church and you don't want to, don't. And, you know, that's not the kind of advice that most pastors give. Because they're looking to fill all the seats. But the truth of the matter is, church is for Christians who are excited about the Lord. You find yourself not excited about the Lord, this isn't the place for you. This is a place to come to get excited about singing hymns to God. This is the place to come to get excited about opening your Bible and learning something from his word. This isn't the place for people who don't want to be here. And if you don't want to come to church, don't come to church, because you know what? You can't miss church if you're still coming to church. And that was his problem. He didn't want to be there, but if he'd have stopped going for a while, there's no doubt in my mind the kind of man he was that he would have eventually started missing going to church again. And he would have rekindled that love he had for the Lord in his house. But being in the presence of the Lord brings gladness. And if you're coming to the house of the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean you're coming with his presence, does it? 
Because you can come and not be in the right spirit. But if you're coming and you're experiencing the presence of God in his house or in your personal life and your morning prayers, it brings gladness. He says in verse 21, as we just read, as my father hath sent me, even so send I you. Jesus was sent to the world as a great light. And I'm going to get distracted for a few minutes. I'm going to get a little soapbox and stand on here for a couple minutes. Because me and Amanda were watching a show. I couldn't tell you the name of the show. I didn't know anything about it. Amanda was watching it. I'm sure I saw the one part of the show that just was this way. And the rest of it was fine because isn't that the way it goes. But we were laying in bed. She was watching that show. And I was had my headphones in. And I was listening to a book. And uh, I heard somebody on the show, they were in a, like a Bible study at a church. And I uh, heard the one lady go, uh, yes, I believe in Jesus. And, you know, she goes, but then I also believe in Muhammad and I believe in Buddha and I believe in, in all these other uh, prophets as well. And that God has sent all of these people into the world to bring a light. Some of these guys even teach some of the same things that Jesus taught. And that we can read in these other faiths and learn from them, too, because they're a light sent from God as well. No, they're not. And they're just not. Because if you don't believe, and this is the thing about it, you can't refute this in Scripture. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes unto the Father but by him, the rest of it doesn't matter. You believe, yeah, they teach that stealing is bad, and they all teach that. So isn't that a good thing? It's not good enough. It's just not good enough because an honest man will still go to hell. If somebody say, yeah, they teach that this stealing is a bad thing. It isn't that good. It's not good enough. It's just not because a man who's not a thief can still go to hell. The point isn't the point of what we do isn't to make people better people. The point of what we do is to bring people to salvation and then bring them closer to God. Becoming a better person is a side effect. That's just naturally what happens when you get closer to God. So yes, we're going to become better people, but because we're getting closer to God, that's not the goal. That's a side effect. Right? And it's about making a priority where Jesus makes a priority. Jesus himself from his own lips. And that's the wonderful thing about quoting Jesus. You never have to worry about being misquoted. He said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Because he said, I go into my heavenly Father. And the disciples freaked out and they said, how are we supposed to get there with you? What, what path do we travel? What forest do we journey through to get to the heavenly Father? We don't know how to get there. And he looks at his disciples and he said, have you been so long with me? And you still don't know me? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus teaching them there, you just trust in me. You follow me. Believe in me in salvation, and you will make it there. Getting off my soapbox now. It drove me crazy when I saw it, and I thought, I've got a platform for this. But he says, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. He was the great light sent to the world of smaller lights. John chapter 1, verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Talking about John the Baptist. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. Now, if you look in uh, John 1, 6, uh, maybe later, because I'm not going to slow down for you, because I've taken up way too much time on my soapbox. Um, <clears throat> that word light 
and verse 7 is capitalized. That's an indication of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, capital L light, that all men through him might believe. He, talking about John, was not that capital L light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus was come as the light, the great light, to light the world with the gospel, with salvation, with the truth of God. And as we receive the light of his salvation, the light of his truth, we become smaller lights to go out and carry his light out into the world. Jesus is the great light that sends us forth as smaller lights. He says in verse 21, as my father has sent me, even so send I you. That's what that means. Verse 22, as what we were talking about before, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So at this point they have the Holy Ghost, but all of its power is not yet activated upon them until Acts chapter 2, which we are going to look at uh, toward the close of this series. Uh, but then he says something interesting here, and this is where we get into more church doctrine. In verse 23, and this is a baffling statement for even the most learned theologians. Uh, he says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now this becomes a problem to people because if he's talking to the disciples, uh, then this is where the Catholic Church gets some of their doctrine about confession booths and so forth and the priests uh, forgiving you of your sins and having to be forgiven of your sins through the different sacraments and so forth. And... Uh, it seems like that might be what he's talking about, right? As you read it through, and I've read some uh, some uh, uh, commentary from other men that have said, well, what he means by this is as they give the gospel. You know, if they give the gospel, then they're helping people find the remission of sins. And if they don't give the gospel, then they are... Those sins are being retained unto them. My problem with that is it doesn't fit with the English of this statement. Right? If you read it through, it says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. That phrase remit comes with it a, a thing of authority. So he's telling the disciples here, you have the authority to deal with sin. Now the problem with that comes in when we read Mark chapter 2. And verse 5 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said in the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's what Jesus said to the sick of the palsy to heal him. Thy sins be forgiven thee. But there was a certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Right? And immediately when Jesus perceived this in his spirit, that they reasoned so within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye this thing in your hearts? Whether is it, is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on the earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man hath power on the earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy. So what we see there is him saying, no, no, this isn't blasphemy because I am God, and thus I have power to forgive sin. So even there, Jesus is saying that only God can forgive sin. He's not giving the church God's power to forgive sin. That still retains with God. So then what are we talking about in verse 23? We're talking about church discipline. 
He never mentions salvation in that passage. Go back and reread it. He says, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained unto them. We talked about a while back in some of the other teachings of the Lord, how that he taught about church discipline before. Right? If a man is guilty of known sin, then, then if you've got a problem with your brother, you go to that brother and you deal with it. If he doesn't repent of his sins, you go uh, two of you and talk to him together. And if he still doesn't repent, then you bring it before the church. And if the church deal with him and he still doesn't repent, then you treat him as a heathen. Right? You treat him as a, a publican. You treat him as, as a, one of these outsiders. Now, that's not to say you judge them and mistreat them and kick them out. Of, you know, and, and that means to say, listen, brother, if you're going to openly say, I'm no longer following the ways of Jesus, you're going to live in this lifestyle. That's your choice. But you can't be a part of this church if you're not going to follow the ways of the Lord. We pray for you. We still want to be friends. So hang out. But if you're going to live in this known open sin and not repent and not even try to come back to the Lord, something has to be done. That's biblical. That's what Jesus said to do. We've all read it for ourselves. But what it's saying here is along those same lines. If you choose to forgive that person their sins and allow them back into church and say, you know what, brother, it's all under the blood. It's all forgiven. Why don't you just keep coming back to church? And that is allowed. Whosoever sins you forgive and allow them to become members of the church again, they are forgiven. But whosoever you decide to hold their sin against them until they make a change, that's allowed as well. Right? Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. They're allowed to come back to church, allowed to become a church member again. Whosoever sins you retain, you are also allowed to keep them out of the church. Now, I do believe that there is one of the two that is more Christ-like. But here the Lord is telling us he's giving us the choice. I believe to err on the side of forgiveness. And I hope we can all be that way. Just because somebody's not living their lifestyle the way that the Bible says they should doesn't mean that they should stop being a member of a church. In my mind, going to church is what helps them grow closer to the Lord. And it, it would have to be something pretty darn extreme for me to move forward with something like that. There are pastors out there, if you watch a Harry Potter movie, you're not a member of this church anymore. And I believe that to be very wrong. That's my, that's the way I lead this church as a pastor. But you know what? This is what he's talking about. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about church discipline. He's telling his disciples here, it's up to you now. They're the apostles. Right? So that's even more than a pastor. They're apostles. So even more for them, whosoever they choose to retain the sins unto them, and they're not allowed to come back. Hey, you see this in the, the epistles too. Right? You can go back to the very end of some of those epistles, and you can see where Paul has said, uh, so-and-so has been uh, excommunicated from the church so that they may learn not to blaspheme the Lord. Right? That means that they stood up in church and started yelling out lies about God in church. So they were asked to leave. But praying, Paul does, that they learn not to blaspheme the Lord so they can come back to church. Too many times I feel like this is abused to the point where we kick people out and they're never allowed back. Right? That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was for people to learn. Like we talked about earlier, people learning to miss church so they can come back. They can repent and get right with the Lord. 
So this is what happened on that first Sunday. He's teaching them these basic things about being a church. These are your responsibilities. Handle them with care, so forth. They're excited to see Jesus. And then we see in verse 24, it says, After eight days again, his disciples were within. Uh, lost my place. Lost my place really bad. Uh, verse 24, I think I was in the wrong verse. Uh, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands and put the print uh, and the prints of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, gross, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. He says it again. He says it again because this time Thomas is there. Thomas didn't go to church that Sunday. I'll tell you something, you always miss something when you don't come to church. I'm just saying, she can put that out there in the universe. But that Thomas, boy, he really missed something. He missed Jesus like popping up. Like imagine if you that was the day you were like, you know. I'm not feeling that well. I've got to get up early tomorrow. I might, I might skip this week. I might not go to church. You know, really rest up, make sure that I'm healthy for the next week. I think I'll just stay home. I'm just going to stay home this week. And uh, then you come to church the next week and people are going to be like, where were you? And they'd be like, I, I wasn't feeling well. Why? What happened? You'll never believe it. The pastor was sitting there teaching and then just all of a sudden Jesus just popped up out of nowhere like he just materialized from a star trek show he was just here it was crazy he stood there and he talked to us all and he taught us and he gave us each something special to remember it, it was amazing it was incredible jesus showed up at church i can't believe you weren't here and you'd go I come to church every other week out of the year, and the one day I decide not to come to church is the one where Jesus just materializes. He missed something by not coming to church. He comes to church the next week. I tell him about it, and he goes, yeah, right, guys, come on. You wouldn't believe it either. No way you would. If you came to church and we were like, yeah, Jesus just showed up, you'd be like, oh, that's funny. And we kept on pressing about it. No, no, really. And you'd eventually be like, all right, guys, the joke's not funny anymore. Let's move on. They say, okay, prove it to me. Let me put my finger in, his, in the nail prints of his hand. Let me see the side. I'll put my hand in there. Prove it to me. Go on. Where's he at? You had him in the broom closet? Where's he at? That's what Thomas did. That's what happened with him. Jesus shows up and he says, peace be unto you, because Thomas wasn't there the week before. You remember what we said? Why did he say peace be unto you before? Because they didn't have peace. They watched this person that meant the world to them be bloodied and butchered and killed. And Thomas never got peace because he wasn't there when the Lord returned. So the next week he shows up and he's there for Thomas. And he's looking right at Thomas and he says, peace be unto you. He's looking at Thomas and he's saying, Thomas, I'm okay. It's okay. I resurrected like I promised. I know you don't remember me saying that, but I did. And I'm, I'm back. 
He shows up and he says, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger. But first he said, Peace be unto you. He didn't start off correcting Thomas, did he? He started off wishing for peace. Right? It's important to remember that's how Jesus does. He's compassionate first. You don't walk in the door. What did you do? What, what, what is wrong with you? Why did you do that? He didn't start off. He didn't walk in the door like that. He walked in the door being comforting, being peaceful, and bringing with him joy. That is how we should all be. We should be Christ-like. Even if you've got some correction to do with somebody, you walk in the room being encouraging. And then you bring the correction. Because Jesus, he had a little bit of, a little bit of sarcasm to him here, didn't he? Little bit of you know, a little bit of oh hey Thomas, was this the was this the hole you want to put your, your your finger in, right? That's what it was. Or was it this hand? That one right there? No, 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 no. it was the side, right? Come on, right in here, right the side, between the two ribs, go ahead. Jesus had a little bit of attitude with him here. Of course, Jesus knows how to deal with his disciples. He knows how to deal with us all. That's what he says to Thomas. And Thomas, verse 28, answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And now Thomas believes. And it's an amazing thing. But you know what? Thomas is the only one that gets such a pleasure. Nobody else before him or after him would receive such an honor. You know why? Because of what Jesus is about to say. In verse 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. Miracles are for those who don't need miracles in order to believe. If you have any doubt within you and you need that miracle in order to really solidify your faith, you can't have it. Every time, you go look in your Bible, every time Jesus performs a miracle in the New Testament, most of the time, I would say seven, eight times out of ten, he, the thing he says to them is, thy faith hath made thee whole. So what he's saying there is, it's my power, I perform the miracle, but I only was able to do so because you didn't need the miracle in order to believe. Miracles are for those who don't need the miracles for their faith. That's what he's telling Thomas here. Because you've seen me, you believe, Thomas. But more blessed are we. Because we have not seen Jesus, and yet we trust in that cross. We've never laid eyes on the Holy One, on the incorruptible, the unfallible, on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Rose of Sharon, the Great I Am. We've never laid eyes on our Lord, our Master, our King. And yet he's as real to us as anybody else in this room. And because of that, we are more blessed. The first lesson at the beginning of the 40 days he wanted to teach his disciples was about faith. And naming this church Faith Baptist Church, we did because you've got your Bible Baptist churches and you can't have faith without the Bible, right? You can't have Christianity without the Bible. You got your Victory Baptist churches, and there's victory in Jesus, and we're excited about that, and that's a fine name too. You've got the church I just came from, uh, the church we worked at before this one, uh, Gospel Light Baptist Church. The Gospel Light is the foundation 
of all of Christianity, right? But you can't have any of that. None of that holds any potency. None of it matters if you don't first have faith. It all begins with faith. It's Faith Baptist Church here. And that was their first lesson, was about faith. Because as we learn in the movie The Santa Claus, because it's November now, I'm going to start quoting Christmas movies. Believing, or seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. And if you choose to have faith, you see things more clearly than you ever did before. To believe or not to believe. That was Thomas's choice, and it's our choice this morning. We choose to believe in the Lord. That is the foundation of church doctrine. Everything else we've talked about, none of it matters. We don't first have faith. As our lesson for this morning, I want to thank you guys for being here. We'll be back at 11 o'clock for the Sunday morning service.